Shalom. Welcome to the New Millennium Edition of the Torah Teaching. This audio program is produced by Lion and Lamb Ministries and is presented by Monty Judah. It's a very interesting passage um, in Leviticus. It's a, In fact, of all of the passages of Leviticus, this particular Torah portion is the one that most often is quoted from. It's because of Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus chapter 23 specifically spells out the biblical holidays. And so that's what I would like to kind of dominate here the course of our review today, to review again the instruction of God's appointed times. We are now, as we speak and assemble, we are in the days of what are called the counting of the Omer. The word Omer is a... um, uh, is an actual measurement of dry grain. And uh, it's different from an EFAF. Basically, if I could give you a sense of what that amount is, it's been calculated. Now, this is according to Jewish sources, so you have to reference to them. You can't reference to me directly. It's 43.2 eggs, approximately. That, that should be of interest to you. 43.2 eggs is essentially what an omer is. That will take up the space of an omer. I've never seen 43.2 eggs actually assembled. I don't know about the four. I know about the 43, but the .2 egg kind of bothers me a little bit in that measurement. I'm not sure exactly how that works. But I thought I would just share with you in the course of me doing some background study for this passage. I found that little tidbit this week, and I had a little chuckle over that myself. Um, the key passage, the key theme that comes from here is speak. As I have shared with you before, there are three great words that the Hebrew uses to try to express God's commandments and God's instruction to us. Sometimes he will say, say. Sometimes he will say, speak. And sometimes it will be speech. And in those, in, in this particular one, as I've tried to give the instruction before, this is the word emor. And if you break the individual letters down, the real word picture that's being formed by this word is the strength of the headwaters. And if you go back and you you were to climb up into the mountains and you were to find the original little creek and stream and that little part that's coming out of the mountain that starts and, and it travels down the mountain and eventually it becomes a river. It becomes a great stream of things. Sometimes... How great a stream it is and how great a flow the river shall be is based on the strength of the headwaters. Are they there constantly? In other words, is that stream always coming forth or does it dry up? And then the headwaters have to come from somewhere else. In other words, how much is coming forth? And what is said here is spiritually that if a man is going to become a great waters, a great flow in his life, it's going to begin first with what comes out of his mouth. It's going to begin first with the testimony of his mouth. And the strength of the headwaters will determine what kind of flow there will be later on. And so Moses comes almost in this word picture coming and giving us some very specific instruction using this word. It basically, if you carry the word picture out, basically indicating that if you can do this, if you'll keep this commandment, if you'll follow this instruction, that which I speak to you, and you will make it a part of you, you'll be part of a great flow. You'll be part of something greater than just was this thing we said. But you'll extend from it. Having said that, Leviticus chapter 21 and chapter 22 is some specific things that that God now speaks to the priests, specifically to the Kohanites. And there's a specific requirement put upon them how they are to keep themselves and how they are to perform their duties. And if to just summarize that all very quickly, it says very simply that if you're going to serve as a priest of God, one of the sons of Aaron, one of the Kohanites, then there are other standards, there are higher standards you must meet. 
Now, I think it's a simple principle. I think you already know this, so I'm not going to elaborate it on any great detail. If you're going to assume responsibility, whether it be a, a responsibility of a family or an organization or a congregation, you're going to take responsibility for other people, then you're going to have to step to a higher standard. You must, you must discipline yourself. You must control yourself so that you're able to accomplish that objective. A father must be willing, for example, to give up certain pleasures that he might have wanted as a man to provide for his family. He makes a choice. I choose to do this rather than this. I, I had choices, but I have to step to this standard. In the, in the call to ministry, it's very clear that as you take on that ministerial responsibility, that you must stand up to a higher standard. Your behavior is going to be reflective of who you represent. In this case, God and godliness. And if your behavior is inconsistent with God and godliness, you disqualify yourself from being in that work because you said you would step to that standard. Maybe, maybe you didn't say it consciously, specifically, and so forth, but everybody understands this. In this particular case, Moses does give some very specific instruction to the Kohanites and says there are certain things that they must do and must continue to do. Even a higher standard than those who just come into the temple. He said if you're going to do the temple service, you have to be to a higher standard because you're no longer representing you and, and, and that you're, now you're representing some godly things and if you're going to do it, you have to do it correctly and right. Each of us, as we go through our life, step into additional realms of responsibility. And the responsibilities and the authorities with each of those positions is different, and the standards are different as well. Having said that, as their example, the same can be said for we who come to a messianic congregation and want to be a part of this congregation. There's, you're going to notice there's some differences. And in fact, there's some standards. In other words, we've come and we've covenanted together. We understand certain things that we do together now as an assembly representing the Lord, being a witness to our community, so that should someone come and see the congregation, someone come and see you, you're now stepped up to that standard. You now represent those things. In Leviticus 23, this same word speak is used in more to begin to say the following to us. Now it's specifically to us, the sons of Israel. Verse 2, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, the Lord's appointed times which you proclaim as holy convocations, my appointed times are these. Now before I go into the discussion of it, Let's talk about this for a moment. It's one thing for a man to speak something. It's another thing for God to speak something. Would you agree with me on that? There is a difference. There's a difference in effect. There's a difference in results. There's a different authority in having said it. And in this particular case, it is clear that God is telling Moses, Moses, I want you to speak on behalf of me. I want you to say these things to the sons of Israel. Verse 3, for six days work may be done, but on the seventh day there is a Sabbath of complete rest, a holy convocation. You shall not do any work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwellings. And thus begins the building block the first little nugget, if you will, of God beginning to give us some commandments about appointed times, about certain things that will tick off throughout the course of your life and they'll be used as measurements throughout your life so that you're in synchronous motion with other brethren, with those who agree with the Lord, so that you can be synchronized and be part of the assembly it's a little bit like, if you will, a, a military unit. 
and where the drill sergeant would say, march, and you begin from this point. And those that are in the military know that you start with your left foot always. You dig that left foot first. And you learn to do it. And then there's a kind of a cadence that comes with it. And you stay in step. And you walk now not as individuals, but as a unit. You are now together. And part of God's appointed times is part of the mechanism that is used to cause you and I in the assembly to come together as a unit. Not a group of individuals, but rather to come as an assembly, as a congregation, to come as a group, a called-out assembly, if you'll allow me to use the word church. That's how we come together. We hear that little synchronous thing, and it moves, and we, we step to the same command. However, if you were in an assembly, if you were in an area and so forth, and you heard different orders being mar you know, called out, march here, turn, flank, it'd get a little confusing, wouldn't it? How could we then be a group? How could we then stay in, in unison with each other? How could we have unity? Well, we can't. If you're having multiple commands and multiple voices barking out the order. All right? So the reason why this instruction is being given to us is so that we'll learn it's very clear we follow this particular command. Thus, we remain the unity, the assembly, and we join together and assemble in this particular fashion. The first building block is Sabbath, the seventh day. You ever heard anybody argue the issue over Sabbath and say, well, how do we know it's the seventh day? It says right there. But on the seventh day, the Sabbath. Now, it's really ironic in this world with all the diversity that we have, all the different religions that we have, all the different countries that we have and so forth. How is it possible that the seven-day week remains true for every nation and for every people? How is that possible? Are you aware of the fact that the communists, when they formed the nation of, of Soviet Russia back several years ago, they tried to change that? They decided to make a 10-day work week. They did. They, you know, and they had total control over the entire country. Total and complete control. And they said, we're going to have a 10-day week. We will count off in increments of tens. Oh, think about that for a minute. It kind of makes us a little sense. I mean, everything else counts off by tens. How come we don't count off the week by tens? It didn't work. Nobody could get along with it. Nobody could work it. It, it, it just didn't work. And every peoples that have been upon the earth, fascinatingly, have kept to the week. Everybody adjusts to it. Everybody accepts it. In the Hebrew, the word week is the same word we use for seven. The seventh day is almost the exact word Shabbat. We also have a feast of weeks called Shavuot, which is a plural version of trying to explain what a Sheba seven is and seven Shabbats is. Now, the Hebrews weren't the original people for the world. Okay? We all understand enough of world history. There was a lot of people before the Hebrew people came. There was peoples and civilization before Abraham came. All that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and specifically Moses here did was authenticate in writing what already was understood by mankind that there is this thing of seven days called a week. And that Shabbat, the seventh day, is a day of rest. It dots throughout many cultures, except for one. Somehow or another, Christianity has decided it doesn't apply. It's really ironic because Christianity themselves advocate the great principles of God and advocate across the board that God is the creator, 
But yet they themselves have decided, even though God has said this is the sign that will indicate I'm the creator and all the other civilizations of the world of mankind can figure it out, but Christianity decided, no, we're not going to do it that way. Now, I'm not here to take issue with Christianity. I'm not here to take issue with Sunday keepers. I am here to advocate and speak that if you do not come to terms with this thing called Shabbat, you do not have the first building block. It's going to be impossible for you to then go over and observe any other holiday that God has pointed to. You just, you're not going to be able to learn it. Because the truth of the matter is that every appointed time that's done thereafter, it says that these are certain holidays that will be done. And on the first and the seventh day or on this particular day, it says you shall do no laborious work. You shall have a Shabbat. And you can't observe those other holidays. You don't know what to do with the other holidays unless you've come to terms with and are at peace with the idea of what a Shabbat is. And it's really, really hard to do. I mean, I mean, you, this is to keep Sabbath, you must horsewhip yourself. Because it says you can do no laborious work on it. You have to rest. Stop and think about humanity for a moment. Six days a week, they will complain that they need rest and they've got to have some time off. But on the day of rest, they won't do it. Are we a funny people or what? Have you heard the people at work? I got to have some time off. This thing is killing me. I need some rest. Well, are you keeping Sabbath? Well, of course not. I'm living by God's grace. And therefore, I don't keep God's appointed times. It's really kind of foolish, isn't it? It's from that building block that we begin a relationship with God in our homes. Shabbat's not something that we keep in the, in the assembly. That's not where you're commanded to keep it. I mean, we have assembled on Sabbath. All of us have taken the day off. We've all ceased from our labors, and we've come, and we've come to assemble to encourage one another and so forth. But each of you know that Shabbat began last night, and last night, if you were keeping the Shabbat, while you stopped, you ceased from your labors, you began to relax. You may have even offered a prayer to invite the Lord to come to your home specifically gave testimony to your children. They saw you pray. They saw you stop and say thank you to the Lord. In, in our home of late, what we have um, specifically begun to emphasize the blessing. You know, one time a week, how about the husband bless his wife? In front of the children, too. In front of other people. Not just privately in the bedroom. I'm talking about out publicly, you know, where everybody can sit. Or to bless the children, the father to lay hands upon their son or daughter and say, you know, you are a wonderful son, a wonderful daughter. Just one time a week, it's amazing what it does to them. Their value system of themselves just soars. They're accepted. They're loved. They're at peace with the world. Outside the home, we can have all kinds of things going on, but in here it's safe and secure. And we know the Lord's real and pleasant and good, you know, to us. It's from that building block, that building block of that relationship with God, that he doesn't, he goes forward and now he says, I have some other days for you. I have some holidays of rejoicing for you. I have some festivals for you. I have some reasons for you to get excited about your faith. I have reasons for you to fellowship with one another and encourage one another and enjoy one another and come and do things together, and we will do things together. Can you imagine having a friend who doesn't ever do anything with you? What kind of a friendship that would be? I mean, think about that for a moment. I have a friend, but I don't do anything with him. We don't, we certainly don't do anything fun. Well, I'm, I mean, how good a friend can that be? If we're going to say God is our friend and we enjoy him and he's a delight, well, we got to do some things with him. 
youth have to do things with him. Older people have to do some things with him. All, all people need to do some things with him. Enjoy him. Have him come and enjoy us. Maybe even lay a hand on you and bless you. Make you feel secure and pleasant. He begins by describing a series of appointed times that he's now set as a schedule for the year. So that as we assemble from year to year to year together and grow together, there's this drumbeat, there's this synchronous thing that we'll now begin to do. And if we'll follow those things, if we'll do them, they will naturally and gently lead us and the congregation into deeper walk with the Lord, more activities with the Lord, learning about the Lord. In fact, I have coined um, all of these commandments about these festivals and holidays. I call these God's audiovisual aids to teach us the faith. Because they're filled with symbol. They're filled with activities. And they teach us, if we'll just do these and just stop and reflect on them and think about them, they'll be of great benefit to us. I dare say to you that if you did not have a Bible, but you could be in assembly that was keeping all the biblical holidays in sequence with their proper teaching, you would have all that you need to teach you and your children how to be raised up in the admonition of the Lord. Because all the base elements are in there. It continues on and it gives us this instruction. Verse 4, These are the appointed times of the Lord, holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at the times appointed for them. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month, at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. Then, on the fifteenth day of the same month, there is the feast of unleavened bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall make a holy convocation. You shall not do any laborious work, but for seven days you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord. On the seventh day is a holy convocation. You shall not do any laborious work. He begins to give the first of the cycle of holidays. A little controversy here. Does the on the day of the 14th at the twilight, is that the beginning of the 15th day, or is that separate? Is that a 14th day? The reason I pose the question is because within Judaism, they have decided that it is one and the same. They have decided that Passover on the twilight of the 14th is essentially twilight of the 15th, and they're the same. Is that what Moses said? No. But there's clear consensus within the rabbis that that's the way it is. Now, one of the questions that has to happen is, which voice are we going to listen to? We need to listen to the voice that came from God, the one that Moses spoke to us. And there is a distinction made between the 14th day and the 15th day. I will confess to you that for many years, up until this last time, I followed basically what it was the traditional understanding. I did. I didn't, I hadn't had a chance to study this enough. I hadn't experienced it enough. But last year I was challenged by some people and they said, take a look at that. that. That's not one and the same. You know, what are we doing? Why are we doing it the way we're doing it right now? And you know what? I got to go through the same experience. Some poor guy has been going to church all Sunday and calling it Sabbath and suddenly coming to terms with the Sunday, the seventh day. I thought it was the first day. Remember, you know, when he got crucified, when he got resurrected, that all shifted to the first day. Remember? Well, that's what they taught me. Well, who taught me that? Somebody different from Moses. Somebody different from Yeshua. Somebody different from the apostles. Now, who am I listening to? 
So these little holidays, these little things here, it's amazing the, the, the consequence, the good things that come to you from this. It's like a quality assurance check every time to go back and say, who are you listening to? Every Sabbath, it's a little check. Who are you listening to? Who's God? Who's the creator? Who is the religious authority of your life? Every Sabbath, you do a QA on it, a quality assurance check to make sure you're staying in touch and you're receiving the right instruction. So then we come to Passover. Oh, now, now we got another check. Are Messianic Jews, Messianic congregations, are we supposed to be following the Judaism's tradition or the tradition of Moses? Moses. Because Yeshua said, had you believed in Moses, you would have believed in me. And he was talking to Jewish religious authorities who weren't teaching what Moses said. Had you believed the writings of Moses, you would have believed my words. John 6. That's the problem today. There's some people who just can't quite come to terms with the words of Yeshua. Why? Because they don't believe the writings of Moses. It's not possible for you to claim that you understand the words of Yeshua and at the same time say, I don't believe the writings of Moses. Because Yeshua said they're one and the same. In fact, he said, it's not possible to understand his words without believing the writings of Moses. Now, that is pretty controversial. Because we have a lot of brethren who, would, who, who stand up and say, I know what Yeshua said. I understand what Yeshua said. I believe what Yeshua said, but I don't believe what Moses said. One of my favorite verses in Hebrews 10:28 that deals with the subject of this of dealing with Moses and Yeshua and I always remind people that this is in the New Testament this is not an Old Testament verse Anyone who sets aside the law of Moses without mercy receives death on the evidence of two or three witnesses Hmm that's a very interesting verse. That's a very interesting verse because that seems to say a lot of people that used to be my teachers and a lot of people I used to be in fellowship with, they are speaking something drastically, drastically different than what the Scripture says. But yet at the same time they say the Scripture is their only authority and this is what we follow. Not only have they decided not to obey the commandments of God, they've decided not to believe the words of the New Testament. Whoa. I mean, that takes the other leg out from under them because they were claiming that they are following the New Testament. Brethren, the reason I mention that is because I'm not, as I said, I'm only using them by example. It's the real examination needs to be us concerning these words. The real examination that needs to be us, as I make to it, is does the words about Sabbath, does the words about keeping the Passover, does the words about keeping the Feast of Unleavened Bread, are they truly being considered by us? Who are we listening to? Are we just going part way and then acting like we're believers and acting like we understand and we're doing the right and proper things. You know, I'm not trying to advocate we have to keep it to 100% and I get to set the definition of 100%. No, what I'm saying is this. I'm saying that you need to be able to go in and read this passage and read these words and they need, they need to be in your heart. You need to be saying, yes, that's me. As best as I can understand it, yes, that's me. And as you continue to do it, then let God's work kind of words soak into you and realize, whoa, wait a minute, it said this. Am I doing that? I, gee, I don't think I'm doing that. But I want to do that. 
and let it take its effect and help synchronize your life and your family's life and bring you and draw you in to the things that the Lord is doing. In verse 10, it says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land which I am going to give you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring in the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord for you to be accepted. On the day after the Shabbat, the priest shall wave it. Now, on the day when you wave the sheep, you shall offer a male lamb one year old without defect for a burnt offering to the Lord. Its grain offering shall then be two, e- two tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, an offering by fire to the Lord for a soothing aroma with its libation, a fourth of a hen of wine, until this same day. Until you have brought in the offering of God, you shall neither eat bread nor roasted grain nor new growth. It is to be a perpetual statute throughout your generations in all your dwelling places. And you shall count for yourselves from the day after the Shabbat, Sabbath, from the day when you brought in the sheaf of the wave offering, and there shall be seven complete Sabbaths. You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a new grain offering to the Lord. It's a holiday we call the counting of the Omer and leading to Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks. Let me kind of repeat it for you in kind of a layman's terms so that you understand what the Lord said. You have the Passover, then you have the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and because it's seven days long, in one of those days a Sabbath will occur. A Sabbath will occur during those seven days. And on the day after that particular Sabbath, you will begin a count. And you will count seven complete Sabbaths. And on the day after the seventh Sabbath, then you will celebrate the Feast of Weeks or the counting of the Omer. So what does Judaism do? They say Passover is the Sabbath. And so the day after Passover, they start the count. And they count 50 days after Passover. Forget the weekly Sabbath. Forget about the Sabbath. and free. You know, see, if you get this thing a little out of sync, do you realize what it does? It just ripples through and messes all kinds of things up. Therefore, according to Moses, every Shavuot that ever occurs always is on the day after a Sabbath. It always has to be. It must be on a Sunday. It can never be on a Wednesday. So that you have seven complete Sabbaths because you counted seven weeks. Now you would think that the Hebrews, particularly the Pharisaic of my brethren, boy, they would be diligent to keep this. Wouldn't they? I mean, you would think, you know, don't we use them as the example of being super legalistic? I mean, doing it precisely by by the letter of the law? They spiritualized it. They don't keep the letter of the law. They spiritualized this thing. They said, Passover is like a Sabbath. The Bible never says Passover is a Sabbath. Never says it. But they said it's like a Sabbath. So we'll make that the Sabbath. And then we'll count on the day after that. I don't know about the seven Sabbaths, but we're going to count 50 days. They throw the seven Sabbath thing out. Because you know why they say they can do this? It goes back to the ancient understanding about the week. Everybody knows about the week. And we know the week means Sabbath and, and seven, and, and, and there's no distinctiveness anymore, and, and who cares? You know, I mean, it, we're, we're doing it. And they insist on doing that way so that their voice is the one that speaks. And the people have to follow what they have spoken. See, they understand the principle. What you speak is what how you will build the unity. It's how you will gather the assembly together. 
Well, which assembly is it now? Is it the assembly of the rabbis or is it the assembly of God? The rabbis. Now, I love my rabbinical brethren and I love my Jewish brethren, but this is what is fouling us up. Because we will not believe the writings of Moses, we don't understand the words of Yeshua. Because we won't simply follow what Moses said. Whenever I have the opportunity to speak with the rabbis and in times when I have, one of the things that I've always said to them, I said, is I want to make sure you understand something, Rabbi. You and I don't have a problem over Yeshua the Messiah. You and I have a problem over you won't teach Moses. You use him. But you'd rather teach the rabbinical commentaries. And that's what you teach, my people, instead of what Moses said. Because if we could get it straight on what Moses said, we would understand who the Messiah is. We would understand. And we would be in synchronous motion together. We would move forward together. I want to read it. This is from the Humash. This is the Hertz Humash, which uh, has commentary on this particular passage. And I want to read to you just some of the words that speaks to this controversy. And the reason I'm pointing out is I'm not trying to make you experts on what some of these controversies are. I'm trying to show you what this is a ex good example of why we're not in agreement with people about the things of the Lord, how we're listening to other voices, how we listen to somebody else speak something. Let me read from his commentary on verse 11. On the morrow after the Sabbath, better, he says, on the morrow after the day of rest. He said, let's not call it Sabbath. We'll call it the day of rest. What's the Hebrew? Sabbath. That's what it is. I mean, they're not disputing what the Hebrew says. We just, we have a different spin on the word the day. We want to emphasize this meaning today. The interpretation of this phrase was the subject of heated controversy in early rabbinic times between the Pharisees and Sadducees. The latter took the word Sabbath in its usual sense and maintained that the Omer was to be brought on the morrow of the first Saturday in Passover. See, they're mixing Passover with the Feast of Unleavened. The Pharisees argued that Sabbath here means the day of cessation from work, and the context shows that the Feast of Unleavened Bed is intended. Therefore, the Omer was to be brought on the 16th of Nisan, the first day after the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And since you put Passover on the same day, then that's how they get it. This is supported by the Septuagint, which renders on the morrow of the first day, and by Josephus, the offerings of the sheaf took place on the 16th, the first busy work day of the harvest, in relation to which the preceding day might well be called a Sabbath or rest day. Josephus, the great historian, recorded some specific events about one particular year. And on that particular year, it worked out that the Sabbath was on the 15th and the first day after the Sabbath was on the 16th, and they brought it in on the 16th of Nisan, which was the second day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And because they have one historical count, because it would vary every year, because they found one particular year that they did it, they said, okay, that's the precedent that, wait a minute, it's different each year. If it's supposed to be the same day each year, why didn't God give the specific date? Because he gave the specific date for Passover. He gave the specific dates specifically for the Feast of Unleavened Bread from the 15th through the 21st. Why didn't he give us the specific date for Shavuot? Why did he make us do this count every year? And more importantly, here's what he says about this particular holiday, which is our next holiday getting ready to come up about the Feast of Weeks. Verse 21, speaking of that day, On this same day you shall make a proclamation as well. You are to have a holy convocation. That's a very interesting phrase. You shall make a proclamation what proclamation? What what do we proclaim on the Feast of Weeks? Well, let me tell you historically what has been proclaimed. 
On the Feast of Weeks, on Shavuot, is the day that God proclaimed the Ten Commandments. It's also the same day that when the New Covenant came, God gave the Holy Spirit. Those are pretty good proclamations. What's the proclamation we make? What happened in Acts chapter 2 that was the great proclamation? The resurrection of Yeshua. That there is eternal life. That God has provided redemption. We have a lot to proclaim on that day. But what do we do? Pentecost, of course, is the day we're talking about. And, of course, the church says, well, Pentecost, that's the day the church began. Does the church keep Pentecost? No. No? What? That doesn't make sense to me. The church admits they started on Pentecost. That's when the Holy Spirit came. That's when we that Peter preached. That's when 3,000 were baptized. You know, that big Christian ritual where we all get baptized. Remember that? You would think, boy, they would be keeping that one, wouldn't they? Well, there's, see, there's a little problem. Because if you're going to keep that correctly, then you have to count back the other 50 days, and you have to be keeping Passover, and you have to be keeping the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and we don't want to do that. Because if we start keeping Pentecost, everybody will say, 50 days after what? What's the 50 mean? So we have different voices. Different people speak. The different more. And so as a result, we're confused. We're not in synchronous motion. We don't understand. This person speaks this, that person speaks that. What, what should we do? I'm, I've got so many voices. How, how do we do this? How do we do this together? It goes on and it gives the rest of the other holidays. It specifically says to us about Rosh Hashanah, verse 22. And when you reap the harvest of your land, moreover, this is a very interesting commandment, right inserted right in here in the harvest. Let me repeat it for you. When you reap the harvest of your land, moreover, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, nor gather the gleaning of your harvest. You are to leave them for the needy and the alien, and I, the Lord, am your God. Why, you know, the rabbis have asked the question, the sages of Israel asked the question, why is this verse in here about how we treat the poor? Why is it in here in the midst of God's appointed time? Why is this little commandment it's given other places too, but why is it inserted here? Why does Moses emphasize and say to us that we're supposed to be careful about how we treat the widow and the orphan and the poor? Because, brethren, quite honestly, the reason that we're coming together to assemble is not to have a country club. It's not a place where all the beautiful people come. Our assembly is not where we're supposed to become an exclusive unit so separate from the world that we're just like any other elite thing in the world. We're supposed to be different. Our, there's a reason for our assembly. There's a reason for our, our coming together to become the family of God, the household of God. And in His house... Everyone eats. In the house of God, no one goes without. All needs are met. There are not some in his house who have everything that they need and others who don't. So the reminder is, you better look about you in your assembly while you're doing this, and you better make sure that even the poor come to these festivals. You better make way and place for them. You better make sure that they have what they need too so that they can participate. Kind of a little QA check on why are we meeting. It's not for us. It's for others too. 
And one of the great joys of observing the holidays is for you to spend a little energy making sure that other people get to come too. If you really want to enjoy the holiday, you know, with the Lord, because he made the extra effort for you to come and you get to join in with the same activity with him to invite others to come. Then we come to Rosh Hashanah. Verse 24, speak to the sons of Israel, saying in the seventh month, on the first of the month, you shall have a rest, a reminder by the blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. That's a little bit different than the other one. Remember, a day of proclamation, but this is a reminder by the blowing of trumpets. Now, how many of you participated in Rosh Hashanah? You've seen the blowing of the shofar. Okay. You know that we have a very specific service. We blow the shofar. In fact, we blow it many times. And, and so within, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's not a great, big, elaborate thing, but it's very enjoyable. It's unique. It's specific. It's kind of uplifting. It speaks to certain issues. Do you remember one of the wails of the trumpet and what it means? The Torah, and what's the Torah mean? The wail of the widow and the orphan. And there's that teaching about the widow and the orphan. It goes right, remember, remember them. Minister to them. Make them an emphasis as a part of it. You shall do no laborious work, but you shall present it as an offering. There's a very specific date there, first day of the seventh month. Tishri 1. Verse 27, now exactly, I love this language, on exactly the tenth day of the seventh month is the Day of Atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you. You shall humble your souls and present an offering by fire to the Lord. Neither shall you do any laborious work on this day, for it is a day of atonement to make atonement on your behalf before the Lord. If there is any person who will not humble himself on this same day, he shall be cut off from his people. As for any person who does any work on this same day, the person I will destroy from among his people. Let's just kind of stop and think about that. Do we really think that the Old Testament is still applicable today? Now you have come into this Messianic congregation, you've heard the instruction about the Day of Atonement, and it says here, if you've heard this instruction about the Day of Atonement, and you go out and do some laborious work on the Day of Atonement, it says God will cut you off from the living. Do you believe it? You better believe it. It's okay for you to be ignorant and not know God's commandments. God looks down with great mercy. And his mercy extends to those who do not know his instruction and know his ways. But to those who know his instructions, who've stepped up to a new level of responsibility, a new standard, because you've heard God speak, and because you represent something now, he's going to hold you accountable for it. I dare say, if you've received the instruction and you understand the instruction in your heart, you've said, I will obey the Lord. And there is this covenantal understanding between you as God's servant and him as your God. If he says, if you do this on that day, I wouldn't dare do it. I would not dare violate this. If you do, one of two things is taking place. Either... You're willfully, defiantly choosing to defy the living God, knowing full well the consequences. And the New Testament says, brethren, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Or you really didn't believe, and you better hope that God's mercy extends down on your unbelief. I think he puts that commandment a little bit later on in the holidays. You know, the first ones you're invited to. But as you see, as you begin to obey and as you begin to participate and you begin to learn additional responsibilities, we're supposed to grow spiritually. We're supposed to move forward with each holiday, with each teaching being strengthened. You know the tradition, when we complete the teaching of a book, we say, strength to strength, let us be strengthened. Let us learn. Let us mature. 
in the Lord and stand up to a new standard. Let us not be like sheep who are on all fours. Let us be like men who stand upright. Let us be not just members of the flock all the time. Let us raise up some shepherds from there who stand on two feet and now take care for the flock. And stand, you're at a different standard now. Different rules apply, different aspects of what God has said. Same thing that a son son does with his father. I can assure you that my instruction to my son Ephraim is vastly different today from what it was when he was seven. Now he's a young man. Now he, he must stand up as a young man and be held accountable. And we are to mature. And part of the process of us keeping the holidays in God's appointed times, it will mature you spiritually. It will bring you forward. Of course, there's some of us we don't want to mature. We don't want to grow in the Lord. Don't want to learn anymore. Got my, you know, eternal fire insurance. You know, that's it. Don't want to do anything more. In a messianic congregation, brethren, you can't get away with it. You can get away with this in the church. I'm telling you, you can get away with this in the church. You can just come in there and spend 35 years just coming to Sunday school and coming to church and going home and that's it. And maybe an occasional dinner on Sunday afternoon. But you can't do it here in a messianic congregation. You know why? Because the messianic congregation will naturally lead you to keep God's appointed times. And you'll be forced to learn first Sabbath, then Passover, then not eating unleavened bread for a week. And then you'll come to Shavuot, and then you'll come to Rosh Hashanah, and then you'll come to Yom Kippur, and everybody will announce, well, this is the day we, we afflict our souls. Nobody eats. <laughs> I mean, one day, I can't eat anything. This is tough. We learn. Then it says, verse 34, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, On the 15th of the seventh month is the Feast of Booths for seven days to the Lord. On the first day is a holy convocation. You shall do no labor's work of any kind. For seven days you should present an offering by fire to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation and present an offering by fire to the Lord. It is an assembly. You shall do no labor's work. The Feast of Booths. That one's different. That one's different from all the others. You've got to get out of your house and you've got to go out and set up a tent or a booth. You've got to have some temporary thing. You've got to go out there and eat a few meals out there. You've got you to get out of, out of your house. Why? So that you can commemorate and remember our ancestors when they first got saved. And they had to come out of Egypt and they had to live in these temporary huts in the wilderness when God gave his instruction. And you learn from experiencing, from tasting, seeing, hearing, feeling, and dealing with your brethren. The very act of dealing with your brethren is part of the instruction as well of the holidays. With the end result being that you have a people who are in synchronous step, growing together, moving forward with the Lord, listening to the Lord. Not listening to other voices, listening to the Lord. To what He speaks. And guess what will happen if you start doing it, like many of you have already experienced. The world will sit up and take note because you are vastly different from everybody else. Just start keeping Sabbath and you'll find out just how different you are. In today's church, if you start keeping Sabbath, they'll swear you're in a cult. Oh, you must be in one of those cult things. Oh, and you're keeping Passover and, oh my goodness, you guys are in a cult. You guys are way out there. Almost off the planet. Actually, it's the reverse is true. It's they who are not listening to the Lord who are way out there and barely a part of the planet 
Because, brethren, the planet belongs to God. He created the place. And if we can't even get straight who the Creator is, and yet we claim to be believing in God, we're way out there. I suggest to you that the most sane and reasonable spiritual thing that you can do in your faith is keep God's appointed times. Just keep them. It's amazing what you'll learn from them. You won't need a big Torah teacher. You won't need all kinds of commentary and so forth. It's just amazing what you'll learn about the Lord. It's amazing how you'll be in fellowship, in sweet fellowship with your brethren. Our congregation last year went out for the full eight days of Sukkot. Do you know how much of a testimony that was? It went national. Did you know that? I've had conversations with people all over the, all over the country. Your congregation actually went out. What, how did you do that? It was a testimony to other messianic congregations. Other messianic congregations. Well, how did you do that? It was a testimony even to our brethren. You mean you left your house for eight days? Well, didn't it rain on you? Yeah. Well, what, uh, don't there aren't there storms and all that? Yeah, there was. Matter of fact, the first night we were there, there was about six or seven, ten or so tornadoes that night. And we kind of did that Yeshua thing. We stood up there, looked at the clouds, and said, God moved that storm away and split it or something, but we don't want to deal with it. And, and I love Gary England's thing. I've never seen a storm quite do that. Just split around Chandler and came together at Tulsa. You know, the question is, do we believe it or not? Do we believe the Lord or not? One of the evidences that we can do to demonstrate, not only for our own hearts, but for many other brethren, is to stand up to the standard. Prove who you're listening to by what you do. I have always said it, and I will repeat it again because I believe it's, it's a true spiritual principle. I can tell which God you're following by which commandments you keep. You don't have to tell me, oh, I believe in this God or that God. I, I can tell. All I have to do is watch which commandments do you keep. That will tell me which God you're following, which voice you're listening to. Because this one is real clear here about these simple things. Now, I don't go around checking up on the congregation to find out how many people are attending and keeping holidays and so forth, and, and I don't intend to do so in the future. One, I haven't got time. And uh, secondly, I'm not your judge and I'm not your lawgiver you know, to it. But let me just uh, kind of close what we're sharing here today by saying the following. God's appointed times are special. And they're for you. They're intended for you. Your willingness to do them, your willingness to participate in them and make them a part of your worship, your walk before God, is a testimony of who you're listening to. It's also a testimony of you joining in with the assembly and you coming in march step with other brethren to be joined together in the greater assembly of the house of God so that we might more effectively minister together. And that's what a messianic congregation is here to do, is to help lead toward those, those aims. Therefore, that's the reason why we keep these holidays and we observe these times. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for Shabbat. Lord, for your instruction. And Lord, we thank you especially for you. We thank you, Lord, that you do give us appointed times, that you, like a father, draw us to yourself, that you make us of the same house and family together. And Lord, we know this is where blessing is at, 
and goodness and all the things that we desire of you, that they're found within these things. Help us, Lord, that we will turn our ears to hear your voice, to hear your instruction. The one that Moses gave to us, the one that Yeshua gave to us, the one the disciples gave to us, so that we'll be in synchronous fellowship, we'll be unified together as your family. And we ask this in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. Amen. For more information about Lion and Lamb Ministries, call our office at 405-447-4429. Our address is Post Office Box 720-968, Norman, Oklahoma, 73070. Our web address is www.lionlamb.net. Thank you.